This week's Behind the Idea finds us talking about Canopy Growth Corporation again. I interviewed Darren McCammon, a Seeking Alpha author who made several early-stage private investments in pot companies, including one being bought out by Canopy currently. We tried to get a sense of how big he thinks this market could be, and he pointed to another parallel market. So it's not just a replacement for alcohol in beer. It actually has the potential to be better than alcohol in beer. Then I asked why the Constellation investment is so important, given it was for only $4 billion and a market that could be much bigger. And he explained that timing matters. Now, Coca-Cola or Diageo or somebody else could definitely come in and put $4 billion into, say, Aurora or Afria, and that would make them a serious competitor. But they have to do it really, really soon, because if they don't, Canopy is going to absolutely grab up all the most, all the key technology. There's a lot of excitement about pot stocks, and Canopy is the leader of the pack. While smoking marijuana may not be necessarily addictive, talking about it can be, and Darren's enthusiasm is contagious. We try to curb that enthusiasm a little bit, and to further understand what type of industry cannabis will turn into. Just to add to the disclosure that we make at the top of the call, Darren is long Canopy via his stake in Ebu and is long Rick's Hospitality, which comes up towards the end of the call. He is considering opening a position in El Dorado Resorts, another company mentioned. And before we get started, I also want to remind you that we're kicking off our Amazon mini-series next week. Four episodes covering the retail giant, with topics including key man risk around Jeff Bezos, whether Amazon can be too big, what's going on with Amazon's financial statements, and is the stock a long or a short at this point? We have some big names coming on, and we're really excited to work on that, so stay tuned. I also want to thank DSTAR13 for their review on iTunes for Behind the Idea. They called the podcast insightful and said, where else can you find in-depth quality discussions about the financial markets with no strings attached? This podcast is especially useful for a noob like myself, still learning what questions I need to be asking when analyzing securities. DSTAR13, you're about to find out what a noob I am when it comes to talking about pot, but we appreciate the sentiment and your support. We promise there are no strings attached, except that you have to listen to our bad jokes. There's so much to talk about with a new industry like this that also has a built-in customer base, and we're still only scratching the surface on cannabis. But I hope we're clearing away some of the smoke from a hyped area and that you can get a better idea of where this might be headed and what that means for the stocks involved. Let's light it up and get going. Welcome to Behind the Idea. We're following up on a previous podcast we did on Canopy Growth Corporation, considered one of the leading firms in the cannabis space currently. We're speaking with Darren McCammon, a Seeking Alpha author who commented on our previous podcast article and left a really thoughtful thesis on the company and who has written about the company regularly on Seeking Alpha. So we're excited to pick his brain about the space and to learn where the cannabis industry might be headed and what sort of industry it might become as it emerges from the legal shadows. Just before we get started, uh, I'm Daniel Schwarzman. Mike Taylor is not joining us on this call. Uh, nothing on this call or on this podcast is meant to be investment advice of any sort. I have no positions in any stocks discussed. Darren was an early investor in Ebu, a company that Canopy Growth is in the process of acquiring. That deal hasn't closed yet. 
otherwise no positions. And with that said, Darren, welcome on Behind the Idea. Thank you for having me, Daniel. Pleasure to be here. So one of the places we wanted to start, you you made some comments about cannabinoid beverages as beer alcohol alternatives. So far, you know, it's it's a little bit of a cliche how many companies are saying, oh, we're going to throw CBD into our or cannabinoid into our beverages. And then there's excitement around that. But what's the what's the sort of idea? What should investors have in mind as this new category emerges on the market? What should they be thinking about? Well, first of all, I think I should just clear up that out there's some of the differences between alcohol and cannabis are, are a key thing to understand. Alcohol, as used in beer or spirits, is basically ethanol. It's one chemical substance. Cannabis, on the other hand, however, is about 140 plus different compounds. So, you know, alcohol produces intoxication. Cannabis can produce intoxication, um, or uh, in the industry, they call it psychoactive. But the other compounds can also produce an entourage effect that might be intoxication plus just chill and relax or intoxication plus sociable or, you know, I mean, some of the other entourage effects are compounds that can be produced, you know, give you some famous things like, you know, couch lock, munchies, um, increased creativity or focused. So when you talk about cannabis, it's, it's kind of a general thing that you then pick and choose and dial into specifically what you're looking for and what you want getting rid of the parts you don't want and keeping the ones you do. So it's not just a replacement for alcohol in beer. It actually has the potential to be better than alcohol in beer. Plus, there's, it's much lower in calories and there's no hangover. Just to make sure that this is a very beginner question, but I, I think I understand it, but I could be wrong. When you say the 140 different compounds, I think a lot of the idea – we talk about CBD, we talk about THC, and my understanding was CBD is, uh, is, is, I think it's legal in a lot of places. It's, it's more of a, I've used it at times as like a cream on my, when I've had a pain or something. And THC is sort of the more intoxicating. It's what gets you high. Are those two of the compounds or just, it, since those are common terms, how do those fit into what you were just saying about cannabis as a broader, uh, chemical effect or, or category. Yeah, you, you've got that exactly right. THC is one compound out of the 140. It's the one that creates the psychoactive or intoxicating effect. CBD is another promising compound out of the 140 that people use as a catch-all for various health effects, including pain treatment, um, and it does not get you high. But there's also another 138 plus compounds CBG, CB this, CB that, various terpenes, et cetera, that not only have also have an effect on the body, but when you get like that, when what people commonly say CBD uh, salve, for instance, for your elbow, it probably has other uh, cannabinoids and terpenes in it that create a um, an entourage effect is the way that it's phrased. It's, it kind of, it can heighten or change the main CBD effect. So for instance, let's say Coca-Cola wants to put CBD oil in their Coke. 
they might also want that to give you kind of an uplifting feeling, a positive or even a social feeling to it. So it's not just the CBD, but also some of the rare cannabinoids and terpenes uh, mixed together in certain formulations and proportions and stuff that are going to create that entourage effect that they're looking for. Likewise, you know, one beer company might want an intoxication effect that's really relaxing and chill, you know, kick back and have a beer kind of thing. Another one might want an intoxication effect that's much more social and, you know, out at a bar and out with friends. Uh, and that's all dialable with cannabis. It, it is not one thing. Right. It's actually a very complex plant. Interesting. And so I, I want to kind of come back to that eventually when we talk about canopy's potential edges. But more generally, your thesis on canopy growth it has the hallmarks of a growth thesis. It's early stages, and obviously with Ebu, if that deal closes, you're kind of still pretty early stage. It's something that we have a lot of trouble with. We've been talking, we've been doing this podcast for a year, and we're both sort of orient towards a value quantitative approach where you can you can see the profits, you can do a traditional valuation not sophisticated, but you can look at a PE, look compared to market multiples and whatever else. And it's interesting as we're, you know, we're talking amidst a week where the stock market is bumping up and down a little bit, but stock markets have been at all time highs for a solid few years. What I'm getting at is how do you think about valuation? How do you think about what makes you comfortable what do you watch out for and what makes you comfortable making an investment in a company like this at, at such an early stage, given that there's, given that the traditional valuation is hard to back into and that it is early stage and there's so much that can still happen before we get to whatever the end game is of the marijuana industry? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. One thing I would say, I also look at fundamentals. Um, I, and in particular, I tend to pay attention to, I guess the way the phrase it would be follow the money. Um, but I, I sometimes say cash flows and stuff. With any high growth, secular growth kind of investment, um, fundamentals are never going to justify a purchase. It, it just won't happen because the entire reason for the purchase has to do with the future the secular growth in that industry. So you never would have bought Amazon or Cisco in the 90s um, if you'd looked at the fundamentals. They all traded at you know 50 to 100 plus times P&E. So I'm not saying ignore the fundamentals. I don't say that at all, but it's not really going to help you. It's, it's really driving while looking in the rearview mirror. What you have to do is, is understand the more the industry trend and the secular growth story that's going on. And frankly, whether or not you think it is a fundamental change, whether you think it's a secular or even a paradigm shift. And then once you've come to that conclusion, you then have to look at, okay, if that's true, and I'm willing to make, you know, place a speculative bet, there's no doubt these are speculative bets, then what is the best company I can choose among this secular story to make me money four or five, six years down the road. So I first want to ask you, because I'm aware of your work, you cover a lot of midstream sort of companies. You, you have a 
marketplace service called Cashflow Kingdoms, really focused on cash flows. It's really focused on sort of traditional opportunities, dislocations, and value. How are you, from a portfolio perspective, how do you kind of piece this together? You, you said speculative bets, but is it something that you kind of lock in a certain percentage of your portfolio for something like this? Or how do you kind of put this into the context of the other investing you do? Yeah, exactly. So basically, Canopy and Ebu were not um, what I would call Cashflow Kingdom stocks. They're not something that I discussed on Cashflow Kingdom until just recently. Cashflow Kingdom really looks more at cash flows, and but it's not just how much cash flow is produced. Um, it is also follow the money, right? Pay attention to refinances, pay attention to greater access to capital, pay attention to those kind of things. So when, can, you know, honestly, this is a bit of a stretch, but when Canopy got the $4 billion from Constellation, there was now a access to capital issue, which gave them a very, very significant competitive advantage over their, over everyone else. And so that's really the point where I started covering Canopy a little bit in Cashflow Kingdom. But before that, all my investments in private companies back in 2014 and stuff like Ebu and others had nothing to do with Cashflow Kingdom and was not even discussed there. So, okay. So how do you, whether it's with Ebu or whether it's now with Canopy, what, how do you differentiate? We'll, we'll get to the $4 billion aspect, but how do you differentiate? What gives you conviction that you're picking the right companies and how do you kind of sort through this when you're still dealing with less than less information that you have in the public markets in, in some of these cases? And just even if it's they're on the public markets, they're still, like you said, you're looking forward, you're looking at a potential shift, but you don't have a lot to go from in the in the rear view mirror. So how do you how do you get confident in the picks you're making? Right. So you're what you're doing is you're looking at the company from a business perspective on, you know, what team is going to be best be able to meet the challenges, identify the challenges, capture the opportunities presented um, on a looking forward basis. And so for instance, you know, way back when I invested in Ebu 2014, it was two guys with a, with a PowerPoint. I mean, we all knew that. So, but what they did with that PowerPoint is they identified some very key problems that they were going to solve and some key advantages and strategies for taking advantage of, of the situation in cannabis where it was not really legal, but sort of legal. That has huge advantages when it comes to doing research on products because you don't have the FDA on your back. And also, there's key problems with cannabis. I talked about it being um, a very complex thing that, you know, it was a greenfield. It, it was nobody had locked in anything anywhere. And, you know, it was pretty much yours there to go in and start staking territory and, and grabbing patents. So you see that this team understands both their advantages and their weaknesses and also where this industry is going. And then you decide whether or not this is the right team or the right management that you want to back. And then, you know, in the case of something like Canopy, it's also, if you look, I mean, they, they dominate Canada. They have the number one most recognized brand. They're, they have greater international presence than any other company. They have $4 billion, which says 
you don't take $4 billion and give up 51% of your company unless you got a use for it, right? So you're going to go out and you're going to be buying people right and left. You're not going to just sit on $4 billion cash. If any company dominates this industry, Canopy is going to be one of them. There's no doubt. So I, I, I want to get into the Constellation deal too, because one of the things we speculated on in our podcast was this idea that Canopy almost became a winner because they were the ones that Constellation invested, which obviously they had to put themselves in position to earn that investment, but there's a little bit of an anointing effect. And I guess what I'm curious about is your comment on our article implied that brands is going to be a major part of the play here and and Constellation has experience with that, but there are other, we often speculate about other alcohol companies coming in, Coke gets thrown in there, the tobacco companies, Altria just is doing something with Afria, you know, and so I guess my question to you is, how much do you think that this edge will persist? We're talking about $4 billion, which is a lot, but if the canopy or if the cannabis market is as big as everybody says it is, it presumably will attract more capital. So what, what's sort of your take on how, how much this constellation investment matters, how much that changed the story and how, how enduring that will be for canopy as we move forward? So I, I think you really stated it well when you said Constellation anointed Canopy a winner. They, they really did. That's what the $4 billion did. I mean, as an example, uh, well, first, let's just understand scale because a lot of people don't understand scale here. If you took the cash on hand of the next five largest companies in the market, I'm talking Aurora and Afria, et cetera, the next five largest, add them together. There's still one-fourth the capital that Canopy has. Canopy has four times the next five guys combined. So they absolutely dominate from a cash available to be put to work point of view. Now, Coca-Cola or Diageo or somebody else could definitely come in and put $4 billion into, say, Aurora or Afria, and that would make them a serious competitor. But they have to do it really, really soon because if they don't, Canopy is going to absolutely grab up all the most, all the key technology. Um, and it actually goes both ways. So I think I, I'm not creating any problems here when I say, you know, Ebu was looking at more than one company for potential strategic investment. You know, this wasn't just Canopy buying Ebu, it's a dance, right? It's a marriage. And so Ebu was also looking at potential partners. And when Canopy got the $4 billion for Constellation, that absolutely put them over the finish line for us. It meant that the shares we're going to get in Canopy are going to be winners long term. And, you know, it, so it installs that kind of confidence, not just from the Canopy's point of view of, you know, we're going to go up and go out and search for key distribution, key brands, key technology, key Accept licensing, etc. But also from the people that have those key items, you know, they're going to want to partner with somebody who has the cash that can most to develop their their opportunities. So, one of the near term things that was kind of you're, you're talking about essentially we've got a rush on our hands, and 
the more that and Canopy having that lead. How how bullish were you about or how did you feel about Canopy before this investment? Was it something that it, not from the Ebu's perspective, maybe, but just from the industry perspective, were they did they still sort of stand out or were they sort of in the pack? And then all of a sudden, in other words, was this I this is maybe not the right way to ask this, but. Was this predictable that if Constellation or if a big player was going to invest, it was going to be with Canopy first over the other peers? Or was this really a, like, a, the luck of the draw and the fact that Canopy got it now all of a sudden raises them two or three notches above their competitors? I'd say, I mean, here we're talking about opinion, but I'd say it's a little bit of both. Canopy, I would say Canopy, even before the $4 billion investment, was the leader. But it was kind of in a pack of four or five leaders, right? So, you know, there's Aurora, there's Afri, I keep mentioning them. You know, Hexo, in my mind, you know, with the, the Coors deal, all of a sudden gained, gained more prominence. But Canopy was, was kind of in that group, but the leader of that group. But when, you know, when they got $4 billion in cash from Constellation, and realize it's not just cash, it's also Constellation, four people from Constellation's on their board, which is going to help them with strategic purchases and M&A and strategic decision making, and also the prowess, you know, the, the international scope and knowledge and capability of Constellation to develop markets and brands and distributions and packaging and et cetera, et cetera. I'm not saying that, that uh, Diageo couldn't tomorrow put $4 billion into Afria and then they would become a serious competitor, but unless they do so soon, Canopy is going to just own a major portion of this market. So let's talk about that sort of time pressure because we, one of the things going on recently, last week, Canada officially became, cannabis officially became legal in Canada uh, last, a week from when we're speaking, October 17th. And there was a big sort of idea on Seeking Alpha and elsewhere that this was going to be a sell the news moment and that's kind of played out so far where a lot of the pot stocks and I know some of the you know Tilray grabs a lot of headlines when they may not be in the same tier you haven't mentioned Tilray yet so maybe not in the same tier as these other companies but still it's been pot stocks have taken pressure and the whole market is taking pressure but pot stocks are standing out what do you uh, what do you think about that in terms of this sort of the timeframes going on here and this idea of on the one hand, the business seems you seem to have to rush now, but on the other hand, the stock market has kind of looked at legalization and said, actually, hold on, we, we can, we can dump our shares now. Yeah. So what you're talking about is timing and um, I, I am not, don't claim to be an expert on timing. What I'm talking more about or tend to talk more about it is the business and who the winners are going to be. Um, so I'm looking more three, four, five years down the road rather than is today a better time to buy or tomorrow or yesterday. I personally think that, you know, <laughs> yesterday and four years ago was the best time to buy. I guess maybe the way to talk about that is so, you know, four years ago, Colorado went legal. And when Colorado went legal, there were a few people, including myself, who saw that this could be a really, really big deal um, and made a few investments, you know, before January 1st. 
and got a nice pop because all of a sudden it's all over the news and there's lines everywhere and it became much, much, much more publicized than even we hoped. Um, and the stocks just went stratospheric. So if you're lucky, you're able to sell sometime around March before the Fed started to clamp down. And ever since then, basically, cannabis has been trading on news. Um, and ever since then, it's pretty much been, you know, buy the rumor, sell the fact kind of thing. Um, so, you know, it's not surprising that Canada legalization was another buy the rumor, sell the fact kind of thing. In particular, to be clear, Canada only legalized flour and oil. Um, they don't have edibles yet. And edibles is all the growth, right? If you look at Colorado, flour and, and I'm not including vape here, just flour and oil. Flour and oil is pretty flat in Colorado, but edibles, which is, you know, vape and cookies and, and you know, beverages, et cetera, is where all the growth is. So you, you haven't seen anything in Canada yet compared to what it's going to be, in, in my opinion, obviously. Also, the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, this is a developing kind of thing. So there's going to be the next story that, that causes this to ramp back up. I have no idea if it's going to go further down tomorrow or further back up. I don't honestly care. What I care about is five years from now. Actually, what I care about is probably two decades from now. But, you know, one thing I would point out, the Gardner-Warren Act, the States Act, if that passes, that's actually bigger than Canada legalization all by itself. What is that? Could you just refresh our listeners on what that is? Sure. So Gardner Warren, Gardner is a senator in Colorado, and I think everybody knows Elizabeth Warren's another senator. One Gardner, importantly, Gardner's Republican, Warren's a Democrat. So this has bipartisan support. And it's also called the States Bill or something like that. And what it basically says, to put simply, it's not quite this simple, but what it, if you want to put it simply, it says... If it's legal in the state, then it's federally legal also for cannabis. Now, that, that's huge, absolutely huge, way, way bigger than Canada's legalization. Again, you got to look at scale. California alone is bigger than all of Canada as far as um, demand. So the Gardner-Warren Act, for instance, is going to allow, can um, and this is what you'll hear a lot about, it's going to allow canopy companies in the United States to have access to capital. They can go to banks and get loans. They can use checking accounts, et cetera. And then customers can go in there and use their credit card to buy canopy. So our cannabis, sorry. So, you know, that's a positive and that's what you hear about on TV. But what you don't hear about, what's the bigger deal is it's no longer illegal to invest in U.S. based companies because they're no longer breaking federal law. So, you know, companies like Altria or Diageo or Coca-Cola, you know, their CEOs are never going to invest in a U.S.-based canopy or cannabis company because those companies are breaking the law. Therefore, if they invest in them, they'd be breaking the law. Therefore, they'd risk, you know, themselves going to jail, but also losing their jobs from shareholders throwing them out, the federal government, you know, maybe prosecuting them or not giving access to them for their regular business. Um, it's just not worth it to them. Well, with Gardner Warren, that all goes away. As long as those companies are obeying state laws, they'll also be obeyed federal laws and therefore will be investable. 
private companies are going to private U.S. all U.S. companies, whether private or not, because there are some publicly traded ones, are going to hugely benefit from Gardner Warren simply, and their valuations are going to go up simply because it's a huge step to other companies investing in them and helping them grow. It's a big step towards moving towards mainstream. And if you also think about it, it's also a huge step. You know, cannabis currently is very inefficient, you you know, because you're regulated to one state and and that just doesn't allow you to build large plants and, and, you know, you can't have acres and acres of outdoor grown cannabis and uh, in a place very conducive for it and et cetera. With Warren Gardner, I think, and this is just a think, I don't know, the economies of scale are going to get much better because if it's legal in Canada and Washington and Oregon and California and Nevada, well, now isn't it legal also to transport between all those places? They're all contiguous. If that happens, boom, all of a sudden you got economy of scale. So, you know, if Canopy, <laughs> I'll eat my hat if Canopy is not talking to major distributors in, you know, the West Coast right now um, about potential purchase if Gardner Warren passes. So just, we don't have to get into the tea leaves of whether it's going to pass, whether it's going to, I mean, I, I, the fact that it's bipartisan and two notable senators on different sides is meaningful. The, the, the Trump administration, from my understanding, and so this could be limited under Jeff Sessions, especially as the attorney general, they, they are still kind of, they're, they're being more proactive is my understanding as far as enforcing federal law or, or, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm a year behind on this, but like, how is that? It's, it struck me that when President Trump was first into office, there were a lot of the industry had some questions about, you know, what's going on? How is this going to play out? We have, some states that are legal, but federal, it's still not, and there's enforcement. How is that? What is that sort of state versus federal? I, I understand the legislation here may may deal with all of that, but like, is there still enforcement issues from the federal government, from the executive branch, or has that been um, toned down in recent months? Well, I mean, for companies that are in the industry, there's always that worry. Uh, in the United States, that hasn't gone away. And and again, for companies that and for people or other companies that want to invest in U.S.-based companies, it's definitely a major hindrance. And frankly, is why all the Canadian companies have done so well in comparison to the U.S. companies is quite simply access to capital from it being illegal. You know, it, it, accredited investor capital is much more expensive than you know capital you might get from Altria or somebody of that sort, so, or a bank for that matter. But back to the legislative thing, which I think is more your question. So Jeff Sessions was definitely against cannabis. Tr- President Trump, however, from the get-go has been much more hmm, neutral, nuanced, I would say. And actually, every statement he's ever made that I've read, uh, and he's only made two or three, has talked about leaving it up to the states. And there's also some other senator whose name I forget, but it was from Florida, who indicated in talking with President Trump that President Trump was planning on getting behind the States Act, which is the Gardner Warren Act, I call it, after the November elections. So based on what I've seen President Trump say, and 
also, you know, these other indications and rumors and stuff. I think that's probably true. I think Gardner Warren has bipartisan support, and I think President Trump is going to sign it on the premise of let the states decide. He's, he's always been pretty clear about that. And so people can say Trump administration, and what they really mean is Jeff Sessions, but President Trump is President Trump. He's Jeff Sessions' boss. So if he tells him to shut up, he'll shut up. He has not been shy of talking about Mr. Sessions. So yeah, yeah I, I can yeah, I don't want to get too deeply into the, the politics of things, but, you know, it's pretty clear that who holds the reins there, right? So. Right, right, exactly. I guess to, to sort of return to Canopy and to the industry as a whole, one of the, one of the sort of the theme of our last podcast was just, this is an exciting industry and there's a lot going on, but it's still not clear what will define the industry. What sort of industry is it going to be? Who is going to rake in the profits? Is this going to be a commodified industry or commoditized industry or something that is brand driven or whatever else? And I I think in your comment, so we already talked a little bit about branding and about Constellation, both funding Canopy's growth, but also giving them expertise in terms of strategic decisions down the line. I guess one of the things that was intriguing to me was you mentioned patents and the, the effect that patents would have on this. And I just, I was curious how that would play out both just generally, how do the p- patents, if we're talking about 140 compounds, if we're talking about a lot of different combinations, I, d- I don't think alcohol, and maybe because it's one compound, but I don't think of alcohol as having a lot of patent protection. So I'm curious about that. But then also within our last question about the sort of legal climate, uh, do the, where, where are these patents? Are they enforceable given that we're, it's still not legal on a federal level. Like, how does that work to either Canopy's advantage or as a challenge? Okay, so first of all, um, an obvious question is, if it's not federally legal, how can you possibly file a patent on it? Right. And let me just assure everybody that you can. Uh, It's been done. It's been done dozens of times. It's not illegal to file a patent on something that's illegal. It's illegal to actually do something with the patent. Right. Okay. 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 So dozens of patents have been filed. They started being filed years ago. And as a matter of fact, I think the most valuable patent that's going to exist in the cannabis space was filed by Ebu about three years ago. So patents, the other thing, key thing to remember is cannabis is not alcohol or nicotine for that matter. Alcohol and nicotine were not, well, they were illegal, but you know, this was back before patents and they're one compound. So, you know, let's say, and I'm going to make, I'm totally making this up. Let's say you found something that's a great sleep aid and it's, you know, three parts CBD and two parts CBG and one part terpene A and one part terpene Z, right? But you don't want terpene Q and you don't want THC because you don't want to be intoxicated and you don't want I don't know, to be hyper from the other thing. I'm making this stuff up. Anyway, that combination, that formulation is very patentable. Uh, it, you know, cannabis is unique in that it's a total greenfield. I mean, because it's been illegal for so many decades, there are no patents or were no patents filed on it. There are now. And so you could really step in and file patents on things that you wouldn't think you could. 
I'll give you an example from the one I was talking about that I think is, I don't think the, you know, everyone's got a great patent on genetics. It's got a great patent on soluble cannabis. These are all patents pending, by the way. It's got, you know, patents on various uh, wellness uh, applications. But I think its most valuable patent is going to be the first one it filed, which it did, you know, three plus years ago. And they filed a patent on the very process of breaking down the plant into its, you know, 140 constituent parts and then recombining them to form a, a particular effect. So think about this. Now that you understand that, you know, each of these components have different effects and there's an entourage thing going on where, you know, maybe THC plus CBQ, you know, has a, a much better effect than, than just pure THC. If you break down the plant, the plant and in, into component parts and then recombine them, you might owe EBU a licensing fee. And I think pretty much any edible product of the future is going to probably do that. Now, will that patent continue to hold up? I don't know. It hasn't been thrown out in the last three years. I know that. You know, how, what kind of licensing fee, you know, you know, assuming Canopy closes with EBU, you know, how much is Canopy going to afford, you know, is going to charge for that? I don't know. But like we, I gave Coca-Cola as an example. If Coca-Cola wanted to break down the plant and have CBG and, and you know, CBD and terpene A, in their product, they're probably going to be paying Canopy a licensing fee. So that's a really, really big deal patent if it holds, continues to hold up. Without getting too deep into the science and By the way, here. I should say, I'm not going to talk about anything in patents that isn't already publicly available. You can go out on the internet right now and find the two patents that are filed by EBU on breaking cannabis down into component parts and then recombining. So, so I, I, what I'm curious about is just a general question, and I, I don't know if this is too sort of scientific for our discussion, but we're talking about 140 different compounds, which you start to do the math on all the different combinations you can make. How much, I'm just, I'm just sort of thinking out loud, how much overlap is there? Let, let's say that Canopy has, or Ebu has nailed a certain combination, do you have a sense of, is there a way for somebody to backdoor into something that's close enough or that is kind of overlaps or what's your sort of uh, understanding of how close these 140 compounds are to one another in, in cannabis? So um, the answer is I, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. And honestly, I, I don't think anybody that's not at EBU, that's not a, wearing a white coat in EBU right now, has a very good idea of what interacts with what, right? That's exactly what they've been working on for four years. And they've been pretty closed mouth about it. However, if you go out to the website, you'll see they've filed 40 patents covering 1,500 inventions. So. Obviously, one patent is covering more than one invention. A patent I just mentioned to you about breaking it down and recombining into parts. If it were me, a lot of those key combinations I would have included in that patent. So if I knew that there were 300 combinations that had key aspects, you know, intoxication plus uplifting, intoxication plus chill, a better sleep aid, uh, a better volume than volume, etc. I would probably 
have filed those combinations as part of that patent and anything close to them. So maybe another question is, as you say all these things, how much do you have a sense of whether down the line, again, I know we're kind of speculating here, but down the line, will this end up being something that would go through an FDA process the way that a new pharmaceutical compound would, where you have to, may have to do the phase one, phase two, phase three trials, get approval that way? Or do you expect it to be more, because obviously alcohol does not go through that sort of test, or you could imagine that certain brands of alcohol might not be out on the market. But is there a, it, like... I don't know. Is there a sense in the industry of, because when you're talking about potential quasi medical or actual medical effects, I'm just curious how much the, the FDA would step in and regulate it the way we would regulate other pharmaceutical things. So that's pretty interesting. You know, right now in the United States, you have what are called drugs and you have what are called wellness products. And the definition of a drug is it's FDA approved and, and you can get insurance to cover it sometimes. <laughs> and then uh, the definition of a wellness product is insurance is not going to pay for it, but maybe it does kind of the same thing. So, for instance, um, uh, GW Farm, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Epidelux for epilepsy treatment, CBD based, probably has other entourage effect components to it drug and went through FDA process. And so they can call it a drug. It can be prescribed. Doctors can prescribe it. Um, insurance will probably cover it. I'm not sure, uh, et cetera. And of course, they'll charge a lot for it. Somebody else could come out with, say, wellness product, you know, shaky CBD oil. And, you know, they're not going to be able to advertise it as a treatment for epilepsy um, or, or better yet, char- <laughs> let's call it Charlotte CBD oil. They're not going to advertise it as a treatment for epilepsy, but there's other ways of letting people know that it helps with that kind of thing, right? You can go out, look up Charlotte's Web right now on the internet and watch some of the stuff that you get, uh, Charlotte's and cannabis, and watch some of the stuff you get. And you'll you'll realize that there has been a product out for epileptic patients for four years now. Um, It just hasn't been a drug because the particular people behind that couldn't put it through the FDA legally at the time. So anyway, uh, it's going to come down to, you know, do you want their product for $10 or do you want the Epidelux for 100 and, you know, with insurance covering it and FDA warranty and stuff. So I think some companies will go one route, some companies will go another, and some companies might even go both routes. I mean, it's it's kind of going to be up to up to them. I mean, there there's advantages, obviously, to going through FDA trials. As far as the cost of FDA trials, it's, it's kind of unknown. I mean, I, I actually question this myself. You know, if you know that your product already works, is that an advantage when going through FDA product trials? I, I don't know. I would think at the least it would reduce risk um, of it not, you know, you don't want to spend tens of millions of dollars going through FDA trials only to find out that they're not going to approve it or, you know, that it, they don't feel it works enough. So if you already know it works because you've done double blind tests, double blind studies and stuff, it seems that would be an advantage from a risk point of view. Then you just have to decide, you know, is spending $10 million on FDA trials worthwhile to be able to declare yourself a drug? The answer is I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's just one of those sort of 
as you're saying this, it's just, that's what makes me so interested in, in the cannabis industries because there's still, it's still sort of emerging. It's still a little murky. We know that people are interested in it for personal use, medical use, whatever else. But then when you're talking about, uh, you know, wellness products and all this sort of thing, like that's in theory a, quite a gray area. And yeah, anyway, I, I just think that's really fascinating. Well, you know, I keep going back to scope because people think of people think of cannabis as something that you can't that you're not going to brand and for the most part I agree when it comes to flour, but when it comes to, you know, edibles and drugs and beverages and stuff, of course it'll be brandable. It'll be just as brandable as, you know, people grow tomatoes, but Heinz is still a very valuable brand, right? People people could people make their own beer, but Corona still sells, right? People grow corn, can grow their own corn, but they still tend to buy cornflakes. So I'm not really worried at all about the branding and people that sit there and say, oh, there's no branding in cannabis. Frankly, they're just clueless. There's more branding opportunity in cannabis than there is in corn or tomatoes or, you know, um, alcohol because of all those components I'm telling you about too. So the, but the other thing I was going to say to remember about wellness or drugs is you know, we've seen epilepsy and the treatment for that um, and Epidolux coming out. But, you know, lore tells us that cannabis can actually, you know, be a better, maybe a better anti-anxiety drug than Valium. Not cannabis in general, but parts of cannabis. Again, I'm talking about derivatives or components being recombined. Maybe a better pain reliever than Coxycontin. I mean, there's a lot of evidence behind that one in Colorado. And, you know, maybe a better sleep aid than Ambien. So the, the scope here, again, I'm not talking about one thing, canopy, uh, cannabis. I'm talking about taking parts of that and recombining to make these things. The scope is huge. And, you know, you were asking about patents. You know, we haven't even dealt with the genetic patents, which, you know, uh, Abu has genetic patents that, you know, now that Canopy owns them, a division of Canopy can very well become the Monsanto of pot. And that's just one division. You know, you're talking about one division that becomes the Monsanto of pot, one division that has, you know, a better Valium, a better Ambien, a very better Oxycontin. And you're talking about another bit division that, that makes a better beer than beer. This is huge. The scope is way beyond what people think. So maybe that's a that's a good place to then just ask amid that enthusiasm how do you how do you sort of make sure that you're not I, I'm not questioning the conclusions you make or the the argument but how do you make sure that you don't overstep or that you're kind of you don't get out uh, uh, over your skis or whatever the phrase is how do you make sure that you're staying rational as you consider new information yeah, absolutely. You know, that's a great question. Look, I, I am very much a proponent of this. I'm very, I actually am trying to temper my enthusiasm a bit, although it doesn't come out that way. One of the things I do and I recommend to people at Cashflow Kingdom is that you have a written investment policy as far as, you know, allocation, trading, et cetera. Um, so for instance, you know, part, and, I, and that you actually write it down. So, you know, what part of my written policy is that I can't have more than 15% of my portfolio in any one individual company. So that's one control. Another control would be 
assigning a certain percentage of your portfolio to speculation. There is no doubt that a, a direct cannabis company like Canopy is a speculative opportunity and so should be limited to a portion of your speculative portfolio. Now, Constellation, on the other hand, I would say is more growth than speculation. So I think you know that, that could be more applicable for people that are maybe a little bit more conservative. So while I think this is extremely promising, I, I personally think this is going to be comparable to the internet. I know people will laugh at that, but I do. You still need to have controls on your portfolio and how much you're going to invest. Okay. Okay. And so maybe last question. I know you've, you've said at some point, next four to five years, another point you said a couple decades. And obviously a lot of this depends on the pace of legalization. It depends on things that are sort of outside of the, it's not just about blocking and tackling. I mean, it is in Canada now, but Canada, it, as you said, is not even as big as Canada or California. So there's obviously a bigger opportunity. What is the sort of, what is the time frame that you kind of keep most focused on as you're, as you're looking at these stocks, as you're studying the industry? When do you really think that you're, that this sort of comes back to you, this sort of rewards you the way that a, I'm not saying from a valuation perspective per se, but like when does this start to, what time frame matters for you most as you're considering these stocks? So I, I originally invested in these stocks back in 2014 and I did it via small startups, private uh, credit investor investments. So when you go into those investments, you go in knowing you're not going to have a, a cash out point for five plus years. I mean, you just kind of count on that. So I've always had a more long-term outlook on this industry. I don't belittle in any way people that can trade it. I mean, you know, I thought people have been very, very successful trading this industry. For me personally, I, it would be putting, um, missing the forest for the trees would be trading to me. I, <laughs> look, this makes a better beer than beer. <laughs> Than alcohol. This is a better uh, component of beer than alcohol is. So, you know, once you get over um, legal hurdles, distributive hurdles, cultural hurdles, right? I mean, you know, a 50 year old person isn't necessarily going to switch from Budweiser up to uh, Budweiser Abu, <laughs> that kind of thing. Eventually, you could be selling more cannabis based beer than alcohol based beer, but that's decades away. Uh, so it's it's a gradual process. Again, my I've had a number of uh, I love sin stocks, and sin stocks can be real multi baggers. But one of my written limitations is that when something gets to be over fifteen percent, you have to trim. So I've had a number of stocks at Cashflow Kingdom that have been four or five baggers, and as they go up and they're still doing great and they still have promising futures, you know, people are saying, why would you possibly be trimming this? You know, it looks better than it did a year ago, even though it's, you know, twice the price. And I say, because my role is 15%. And when I hit 15%, I have to trim. Um, so that's how I'm looking at it. I'm, I'm holding this for, well, probably the rest of my life, but, it, you know, at least the five, next five to 10 years. And along the way, as it continues to hit 15% of my overall portfolio, I will continue to sell some. Do you also continue to sort of 
add some opportunistically or how do you, or is it most, or do you feel you're already at a point where you're comfortable to let it ride until it starts to hit your upper threshold? Well, with Canopy, I couldn't add any because I can't. So one of my rules is that I can only add up to 10%. And then after 15, I have to start subtracting, right? So I'm already way over the 15 as soon as, you know, I don't actually have Canopy shares yet. But once I do have Canopy shares six to eight months from now, I'll have to start cutting that down to 15% over time, though. But anyway, so I couldn't invest more in Canopy now if I wanted to. But I could invest in other companies if I chose to. I don't, and and there are. Let, maybe we should just change it to a different. There are other stocks that are have been high growth stocks. RCI Hospitality, for me, for instance, which as it got over fifteen percent, I trimmed. You know, maybe in that particular case, I trimmed it down to. I cut it in half, down to like an eight percent allocation, um, and so I was able to opportunistically bring that back up to ten. So that, that's kind of how it works for me personally. I could theoretically also invest in other canna, uh, cannabis-related stocks and might very well do that. Um, as I said, I do have other private placements that I made. And some of them are now also a little, there, there's some small public ones that I have also. But honestly, I keep looking at them compared to Canopy and they just don't stand up. So. Okay, that's... Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I like that rule of a one threshold for where you can add up until and then another threshold for where you want to start trimming back from. Obviously, you want to give yourself a cushion there because you're hoping that 10% will turn into 15% based on growth in that in that stock. So that I, I like that. I like that dual rule there. It works well for me. Now, you know, I don't want to give people the wrong impression because I do run Cashflow Kingdom. Cashflow Kingdom does growth and income stocks, but, you know, there's a heavy focus on income. So while I talk about things like Canopy and, and RCI and, and, you know, um, Eldorado and, you know, and do present those kind of things to people at Cashflow Kingdom, you know, most of 80% of Cashflow Kingdom, 79% of my non-canopy portfolio <laughs> is uh, all income plays. So, and that's mainly what we talk about in cash flow kingdom. Right. Which also, whether consciously or not, adds its own sort of diversification because those are going to be different, very different sorts of companies as compared to something like canopy. So that Absolutely. A- absolutely. And, it, and it's why, you know, I don't have a problem taking a little bit of money here and there and putting it into something more speculative. Some of these, well, they don't have to be sin stocks, but honestly, all my big winners have been sin stocks. So stick with what works. Yeah, the funny thing about sin stocks is they're constantly undervalued. So, you know, there's a big portion of both fund managers and individuals who who just won't touch them. And so you can like just apply normal valuation techniques to them and find out that they're just huge steals. And, and can continue to be huge deals for years. So, you know, I think uh, they they're, they make for great multi-baggers. Okay. Okay. All right. This has been really, really fantastic, Darren. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and wishing you luck with 
as Ebu turns into into canopy, hopefully, and then going forward, it be, it, it's it's going to be an interesting space over the next years and decades for sure. And so it'll be fun to see how it plays out. Thank you, Daniel. I hope to look forward to talking with you again. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. I hope you enjoyed this. You may revisit Pot Stocks in the relatively near future, so if you have any feedback, questions, suggested guests, or anything else, email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. If you have a chance to subscribe to this podcast and haven't yet, do so. Lipson, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play all carry Behind the Idea, and we expect to be on Spotify soon. As always, we love reading your reviews, so please leave them if you have the chance. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Make sure you stay tuned for our Amazon four-part series, which starts next Tuesday. And see you next time on Behind the Idea.